I got rejected from the UBC Soto Co-op program in my second year. And looking back, it was one of my lowest moments here at UBC as a student. And it was my lowest moment for a couple of reasons. One being that I was really looking forward to the co-op program because you could take a break from school for four months, work at a company full time, get experience and get paid for it. And another reason why it was my lowest moment was because I felt like I was lagging behind from my peers and that I could never catch up. It's been two years since that happened. And in those two years, I had the opportunity to complete an internship at Scotiabank, at Lululemon and another Vancouver based startup. And my journey has been full of ups and downs, acceptances and rejections and a ton of things that I wish I knew before I started my journey. And that's what this podcast is about. It's about giving you perspective into what your co-op journey could look like. And to talk about that with me today, I have a very close friend, Dheeraj Hariramani. Dheeraj, do you want to introduce yourself? Yeah, thanks for having me here today, Hima. So, hey, everyone. Thanks for tuning in. My name is Dheeraj. I am a fourth year student at UBC pursuing a specialization in finance. I was lucky enough to get into co-op uh, in my second year and complete my three internships, which is why, you know, I'm kind of finishing up my degree degree right now. And some of the places that I worked at were Scotiabank, uh, Laboratories of Canada, and I'll, be, and I'll be going into consulting. So thanks for having me here, Hema. No, all good. All good. Um, really glad that you're here and you're taking this time to talk about the co-op program and Honestly, when we take the structure, I wanted to be super fluid, but one of the first things I think we should talk about is the application process itself and what co-op is. Um, I know that at this point, students have interviewed, um, at, least, at least for the UBC sort of co-op program, and they're waiting to hear back. Um, so we, we won't need to go into detail, but we can just quickly talk about what the application process is like. So we know that regardless of what faculty you're in, there's at least a couple of rounds. So you have your written round where they expect you to have certain responses towards um, set up preset questions they've given you. And the second stage is when you do your group interview. And if you're in UBC Soto, your group interview is likely with peers who are intending to specialize in the same field as you or, or already specializing in the same field as you. And then after that, when you hear back, you know whether you're in the co-op program or not. And the cool thing is that if you're in second year and you get rejected from co-op, you get another attempt. So when you're in your third year, you can try again going through that process and, and hopefully you'll make it. So that's in general, the co-op process. And what I, but I, what, something that I thought we could spend more time on talking about today is what do you do after you get into co-op? Because I feel like there's a lot of conversation going around on why co-op is so cool and what, what all it can do for you. but we talk less and hear less about what do you actually do when you get into co-op and what happens and what that experience is like. So I want to hand it over to you at that point to maybe as someone who got into co-op in their second year, just take us through what that process was like for you. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, after the, the day I got into co-op, I'm like, that's it. You know, I've got my jobs ready. I'm going to get job experience and everything is figured out. Mm -hmm. But, you know, the harder part, unfortunately, comes after you get into co-op. Right. And especially when you're looking for your first co-op term. So when people, when I, when I used to think about co-op, I used to think about once I get in, I've got a job technically, or I've got, you know, an easy access to a job, but that's, that's certainly not the case. And what the good thing about co-op is that what it does is that it gives you a lot of resources and a lot of access to jobs, to mm -hmm. job postings, but the onus still falls on you as a student to be taking time of your day, to be learning about how you can apply and spending that time applying. Because I think in my first co-op term, I probably applied to about 40 jobs, 40 to 50 jobs. And 
it, to me, it's a lot, but you know, people also apply to hundreds of jobs and that's because the first one's always challenging, but as you go through it, you get better at it. You learn more about yourself. You learn more about, more about how to make a better application. Mm-hmm. But the biggest point is that, you know, right after co-op, that's where the tough part begins. That's where you need to actually get a job, search mm-hmm. for a job. And while well, you have the support around you, you're in the program. That's one sort of benefit, mm-hmm. but you still have to work hard to get a job. Yeah, no, I think you're 100% right. Um, I got into co-op in my third year and I still have the same experience. And in fact, I got into co-op having one internship experience on my resume and I still found it incredibly difficult. And what's something that I didn't know um, specifically was the time commitment that comes with it. But before we just quickly, we talk about the time commitment, I want to quickly touch upon the one of the first few things you do with your resume or your cover letters. Um, you definitely have to like prep your resume a little bit more from what you had from your co-op application you you try to scram in as many club experiences or high school experiences you have because that's the best that you can do in that moment and you also start thinking about what jobs am i going to apply to what companies stand out and things like that and once you have all that figured out more or less you get into that job search phase that you were just describing and and to be very honest to everyone who's listening it's super brutal and it's brutal because of how much time and effort it actually takes versus what we think it would take Right. Um, I think the general perception is that, oh, like you prepare, you have your resume that's general for everything. You write a cover letter that's a little bit general, but still specific to the companies. And then you just apply and then somehow they'll just read everything, compare apples to apples and pick you as a candidate if they like you. But unfortunately, it's not like that. And we, we can still talk about more ahead on why it's not like that. But I learned that from my first job search experience that doing going through job search is almost like taking an extra course. Right. I was taking five courses and still looking for a summer internship. And I, f- I felt like at that point, if someone told me that this is going to take as much time as doing an extra course, at that point, I would have honestly considered taking only four courses and going to a job search and giving myself that time. And besides the time and effort, job search also has a strong impact on your mental health because you apply, like you said, to 40 jobs, 50 jobs or 100 jobs, and you will arguably get rejected from a lot more than you get acceptance from or you even get the next stage from so it tires you out because you're spending so much time in a week applying for jobs in your resumes and your cover letters and it also then kind of brings your entire confidence down when you get rejected from a role especially ones that you think that would be really nice where you probably think you wrote a very nice cover letter or had the perfect resume for and that's where i think a lot of students take their first hit when they get into co-op because they don't see that coming. And I don't blame them because just like you said, when you get in, you think like, oh, like half the battle is won. Like I'll, I'll figure out the rest as I go. Yeah, no, I, I definitely agree with you. you. know, worse is that even though I applied for 40 jobs, I probably heard back rejections from 10, right? Mm-hmm. I, I got rejected from all, but I heard back from 10. And, and you're right, like, you know, it's a process where you have to keep applying, mm-hmm. but you're also in the same time, you might be getting rejected. And mm-hmm. You, you start to think you're like, you know, what's the, what's the point of me just keeping applying and just keep going. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, we'll talk a little, a little bit, I think later about, you know, what are some strategies that you can do to better your chances. But mm-hmm. I think one, one important aspect is that even, even when applying the mistake I made in my first, when I go into my, into corporate, when I was in my second year, mm-hmm. you know, you read a job description and you're like, mm-hmm. I can do everything on this. This is the perfect job for me. There is no, no one mm. better for this job. And I felt yeah. like that for probably 10 jobs, but mm. I don't think they saw it, you know? It was just me yeah. alone. <laughs> and I think one part of that was because I was going for really big, short companies. Not, mm. not, that, not that, you know, some people might not be capable of getting it, 
But I think when you're first starting out, it's important to also be realistic with yourself Mm -hmm. to be, you know, kind of like, okay, I'm in my second year. I don't have as much experience. Yeah. You know, let me invest some time, maybe in some personal projects, mm-hmm. um, doing some work that I can, you know, project on my resume and mm-hmm. applying for, you know, small to medium co- companies that might actually give me a shot or might yeah. be better suited for me. And that turned out that that worked out for me. Right. And so I think mm-hmm. it works out for a lot of people like that. Yeah, so sure. even though you, you might get rejected from a few companies, also look at the company, right? Like, mm-hmm. yeah, <laughs> it's okay to get rejected from there. Yeah, like a, a certain Deloitte or an Accenture or like whatever you name it, like Microsoft, Google, you, you're more likely at any point uh, when you're applying to get rejected than to get an offer from them. And that's not to say that you shouldn't apply there. Um, but I think it's exactly what you said about being smart with your time and effort. And at the same time, there's something very rewarding about working at a small to medium company because they give you so much work experience. Um mm-hmm. Hopefully in the future podcast, at some point, we can cover that in depth as well about how you can take on a lot more responsibilities and really have experiences that you can speak to by the time you start applying to those, like those bigger companies or those like quote unquote dream companies that you have in mind. But it's still worth applying to those big companies. And what's worth even more is to actually seek feedback from every company that you at least heard back rejection from, right? So you get an email saying, you know, given like it's that standard email, that template email that comes out that we had a high number of applicants and, you know, it was super competitive. Unfortunately, we can't move forward with you. I think there's a lot, there's a lot to learn and a lot to be gained when you reach back out to those companies or those recruiters specifically saying, can you give me some feedback? Tell me what about my application didn't convince you to give me the job or tell me a little bit about the candidate who got that position and how I can work towards it. And I think there's a lot of, that the wealth of information there is is incredible and it will make you feel so much more prepared for ones when you apply in the future and you'll cover a lot more bases for yourself um, for when you're applying for jobs in the future. And yeah. we talked about job search and how long it's going to take, but where do you actually find your jobs? Well, UBC has, like UBC Soto, for example, has cool um, like uppercase C-O-O-L where you go in and all the co-op postings are done there. Um, I know that engineering and science has scope um, where all these internships and co-op postings go up, which you get access to as a co-op student and you can apply to those jobs, but those are more traditional and a big part, but a big part of finding co-ops or internships is the hidden job market. And that's something that, again, you hear, you hear about that when you're, when you're in the co-op process, when you're in that pipeline, but you don't actually come to experience it or, or see it even until you start applying. Yeah, no, I, I 100% agree with you. Networking and the hidden job market, as you say, mm-hmm. is, is the biggest job market that's out there, you know? So, and, and it's the biggest job market with the least applicants. So if you want to better your chances, that's the best place to go. Mm-hmm. Even coincidentally for me, none, like all three of my co-op experiences were all in some part because I networked. And the reason I was able to get even, you know, in, in any place professionally, was partly because I was networking, because I was trying to build relationships with people. Mm. And and that's such an, you know, when I was in my second year, I I, I first, I made a LinkedIn account. You know, that that's the first step, right? Make a LinkedIn account. Uh, you probably meet a lot of people there. And, mm. you know, I, I used to be like, oh, this is just bullshit. Like, <laughs> why should I just like, you know, talk to random people about their life and about their experiences? Yeah. Let me just like mm. apply to the job. But yeah. think about this, right? Think about a company receiving applicants you're not only competing with students around ubc 
Mm-hmm. You're competing with students in different universities all across Canada. Some maybe in the states in some cases. Yeah. As a think about a company that has one co-op job posting, mm-hmm. a thousand applicants. Yeah, and for them, they probably have like three days or, or a week to turn around. Yeah. So in their head, the fastest way is that okay, who do we know? Yeah, right. Who mm-hmm. do we know? Let's look at them first. Mm-hmm. Right? Are they nice? Is the applicant nice? Is the application mm-hmm. nice? Sorry, and then give them mm-hmm. a give them an interview. And yeah. the moment you're going from your resume cover ab- application to an interview, mm-hmm. that's when you know that something like a company has seen something in you. Yeah. And that should be an absolute booster for you. Even though you don't progress ahead, the mm-hmm. fact that you move from step one to step two, that's the biggest jump, right? Yeah. The resume to the interview is the biggest jump in the whole process. Yeah. So I'd say, you know, we can we can loop back to networking. I think I went a little bit off track. No, no, no. Uh, I think I think you're onto something there, though. Um, definitely, if you look at the entire job process and compare processes where you have a little bit more control, um, I would say that this, even though you make your own resume, you write your own cover letter and you apply and you do everything right, um, hypothetically, mm-hmm. you really have not that much control over your application because again, there's this hidden job market. There's recruiters looking to hire candidates who they've already kind of vetted um, in some sense. So you only get some control over the outcome of your application by the, if you're interviewing for that role, because then you know that whatever you speak to is in your own words and you're able to at least use some of your like charm, so to say, um, to talk Mm -hmm. to the interviewers and and really convince them that you're the right candidate. So in every process before that, you're going up against thousands of people. And I can say that I heard from the recruiters at Lululemon that they had received at least 2,000 applicants. I mean, I mean, applications, sorry. And they, the final cohort of interns that they stuck with was 15. So those are ridiculous numbers if you think about it. And that's, that's how many people you're going up against when you're applying, especially for these, for these big companies. And what, the reason why networking happens, and we'll, we'll try to define that a little bit more, but the reason why networking happens is that companies find it way more effective to hire candidates who have been vetted by existing employees, right? So say you're talking to someone who's a consultant at Deloitte and you want to get a co-op at Deloitte and you start having a conversation with them. If they see that you're someone whose energy is something that they'd want to nurture and grow into something better and give you that mentorship and your overall values are aligned more or less with how their team works, even like not just Deloitte, but even their team, then they know that by hiring you, it's going to be a lot easier to get the best out of you. So yeah. you can, some, some recruiters or some companies might call that a culture fit, right? Um, which is a broader term, but that's essentially what it means. You're someone who can thrive in the culture that they have at the company. And once they know that before they even read your resume or your cover letter, it makes it a lot easier for them to hire you or take a bet in saying that this is someone who can grow into that role. So yeah. that's a big reason why networking is effective. And so how do you actually end up doing networking and how do you get good at it so let's talk about that so you talked about linkedin um we've all been there when we first made our um linkedin profiles literally connecting with everybody and every one you see in your recommendation with all your friends friends from all over the world and now you're slowly starting to get that level of visibility with your profile and you send out your first message to this person at a company that you're interested in working for so there talk me through this what was your first approach like to networking and and just talk about how that's like changed over over the years i guess yeah i think well what first big thing with networking is that you get better the more you do it mm-hmm. right and and you know as a mistake i see a lot of people make especially when they're young and, and i made myself was that i'm networking with the primary goal to get a job 
Yeah. The moment mm-hmm. you're thinking like that is when you know the other person can also see it. The other mm-hmm. person you're networking can be like, oh well, this person just wanted a job out of me, and mm-hmm. so I don't really care, like you know, to help them out. Um, mm-hmm. But you know, when you when you start doing it a lot more, mm-hmm. it's important to focus on actually getting to know the person, actually building a relationship, keeping in touch with people, you know, and that's where people start valuing you more. You'd mm-hmm. rather have one. A one person where you've built a meaningful, strong connection with, mm-hmm. than a thousand people that you've spoken with once, yeah. because yeah. that one person can get you a job, but those thousand people, those other thousand people, just know your name, yeah. and that, yeah. and some of them probably don't, right? So that's not mm-hmm. enough. And so yeah, of course, when you're networking, you know, you reach out to someone. Mm-hmm. Hopefully, they're giving you a chat, right? Don't don't be discouraged if they don't. There's there's, there's probably mm-hmm. thousands and thousands of people, so it's okay. Yeah. You know, ask for ask for a conversation, a 15, 20 minute conversation, and mm-hmm. when you go into it, you know, one one thing that I've got better at, I feel, is not being more not being too robotic, because mm-hmm. I see that you know when I first had a coffee chat, I was like, okay, I have five questions in front of me, yeah. I need to get these answered. Yeah. But the moment you're doing that, the other person yeah. feels like they're in an interview. The other person yeah. is like, okay, relax. Like, you know, I, I want to just talk to you. I want to get to know you. Mm-hmm. I don't really want to be so pressured to, you know, feel like I'm in an interview or something like that. So yeah. I'd say that's such an important aspect, you know, just being natural, being conversational mm-hmm. and, and, you know, building that relationship. But that's a very high level. Yeah. Uh, you know, we can we can dive deep into one or two aspects if you like. Yeah. But that's and, and just when you're there about building so what I'm hearing based on what you said is building long-term relationships and also being more organic with your conversations. And obviously these are things I'm sure most students hear, right? This, these are things even we heard that yeah. when you're talking to someone, try to build a relationship, a bond and try to be natural um, and organic so that they can really see who you are. And when you're a student, that doesn't sound super helpful because you're like, yeah, well, I mean, at the end of the day, I don't want to spend six months talking to someone with the hope that at some point they'll give me a job. Uh, my goal right now in January of 2022 will be to land an internship for May 2022. So I really only have those four months. But believe me when I say this and believe Dear when he says this as well, that when you do those kind of shortcut networking strategies and like, let's talk to five people from some company, let's see who I hit it off with and then just like hope they give me a job. Mm-hmm. More often than not, it doesn't lead to where you expect it to be. And I don't blame the person who you're networking with. And I don't think you as a student are categorically doing something wrong. It's just when you lack that relationship with the person you're networking with, it's hard for them to even go back to go back to the recruiter internally and say, okay, like I spoke to this kid from UBC, he's studying XYZ, and I think he'd be a great candidate because their word has some weight and they're not going to throw that away for someone who they think just spoke to them once or twice or seemed robotic in that conversation. Right. So I think as a good first step, it's important to maybe go through their experiences, see what was relatable for you or something that interests you. Um, those could be great conversation starters and definitely use those. Right. So if they went to the if they went to UBC as well, bring that up as a point. If they interned at some company or they went somewhere on exchange and you think that's cool, like bring those up. Those are great conversation starters. But at the end of the day, when you're building that conversation, try to really explore what is it about the work that they do that made you want to reach out to them and what can you learn from them and when they were in your shoes, what did they do? What did help? What helped them get to where they are? And I think from there, it becomes a more give and take kind of relationship, right? Um, as a student, there's not that much you can give to them um, apart from the fulfillment that they're able to give back to the community or, or to the community of students. But it still shows genuine interest. And I think that's a big, big factor that a lot of us undermine 
Um, I know that being in my third year now, and I know dears, you've, I mean, my fourth year and dears, you've been, you've done this as well. When students in their first year or second year ask you about something, whether it's courses or about like internship or something, it makes you feel good to be able to help someone. Yeah. And, and you would actually take time in a busy week to have that conversation with them, which is what these like people working full time at your dream companies are doing as well. They feel happy doing this. So it's not that they're t- putting a lot from their end or it's costing them a lot to spend that time with you. They are getting something out of it as well. Um, so don't feel like you're there as a transactional thing where you're only going to get something for yourself and it's going to seem super selfish. I mean, in some ways it is, but as long as you're trying to have a genuine conversation and really explore and understand what they're doing, they will see that genuineness. And if they're equally willing to help, you will see that in the conversations as well, that they'll throw questions back at you just to get to know you better. And that's when you know that relationship is going somewhere. And that's essentially what networking when with someone when you're building a relationship looks like when it's developing past that initial small talk kind of phase when you're still exploring what they're, what they're doing. Yeah, and, and, and just to mm-hmm. add to that also, you know, I think one very important thing is that if you found that you're really connected with someone, Mm-hmm. and you have a chat with them and you think after that like that was an amazing conversation i really like that person we connected well mm-hmm. don't forget them you know mm-hmm. chances are they probably liked you if you had such a good conversation so yeah. and it, the onus falls on you as a student to keep in touch right you know mm-hmm. maybe reach out and like i have a calendar reminder of a mm-hmm. list of people that i need to reach back out every maybe 15 days or 30 days right you don't mm-hmm. want to keep bugging them every week but mm-hmm. you still want to keep in touch with them so they remember you and you keep yeah. having that conversation, building that relationship and that mentorship. Mm-hmm. And one thing that I like doing is that if I found that I've really connected well with someone, mm-hmm. I directly ask them, is, I'm like, you know, I, I found that this thing that you spoke about was really interesting. Mm-hmm. Is there someone you can connect me in that space with? Yeah. And that's, that's a very good thing to do because one, they'll probably connect you with someone they know. Mm-hmm. And chances are you'll hit it off very well with the new person as well, yeah. because, yeah. you know, it's, it's, it's similar kind of group. It's a similar group of people. Mm-hmm. So, Always try and build your network, but also maintain the relationships that you feel mm-hmm. that, you know, can give, can give you a lot of value as a mentor. Yeah, no, I think that's that's very well put. And that's essentially what networking means, right? Um, it's, it's still a very people-oriented process and it's up to you and how you maintain those relationships. And whether, regardless of what happens when that job process, you may not, you may not get placed at that company in that role. Um, but if you still had a good conversation, you should still keep it, um, not just from the idea that it will lead to something in the future, which is still a great motivator. But just the fact that you're able to talk to someone who's in the industry doing something that you might want to do at some point is super helpful. You learn things and hear things that you wouldn't have access to otherwise. And um, that perspective that um, this podcast was intended to bring as well. And just as we're closing, I quickly wanted to touch upon the fact that there are students out there who don't get into co-op in their second year, right? Um, and for them, I've, I've been there, so I know what that feels like. And I want to take the next minute or so to talk about what you could still do to build a career ahead because get, not getting into co-op in your second year is definitely not the end of the road. There's a lot that you can do. So I want to quickly touch upon what you can do. And here's something that's super helpful. Even if you're an international student, you can still intern the summer right after your co-op applications are due. So if you're a student right now who just got rejected from co-op, you could still intern in May 2022, right? Even if you're an international student. So definitely keep looking and do what 
we just talked about, which is prepare your resume, prepare your cover letters, network with people, look for jobs in spaces where you want to get some experience and still chase that. And if that's hard for you, find those small or medium-sized companies, find those clubs or organizations where you can get the relevant work experience. Yeah. And always remember that experience isn't necessarily a job, isn't necessarily an internship. There's other ways to get experience that helps. Experience is something that where you learn something and where you grow. Mm-hmm. And if you can... If you take on a personal project, if you be a part of a hackathon, if you do anything that mm-hmm. teaches you something and helps you grow, mm-hmm. that's experience. That's something you can put on your resume. That's something you can sell in an interview. Mm-hmm. 100%. And I think that's a great note to put this episode to an end because I think we're about that 20-minute mark. But thank you so much, Dheeraj, for taking some time to chat with me today about co-op. And hopefully to those listening, this was super helpful. If you're in your first year, you've got a year to prepare for this. So definitely have this in mind. If you're in your second year or third year and have got accepted, you know what to expect. And even if you haven't gone into co-op, you know what to expect and what you can do. So hopefully this podcast was really helpful and check out the space for more content as you move forward. Absolutely. Thanks for having me, Hima. All good.